Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, starting in verse 15, going through verse 35. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let not let the one who, who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For the false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if, you say, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through the gospel of, of Matthew. And to say the least, as you can tell from the reading, this is not the most straightforward of, of passages. So before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your spirit that you send unto us to understand, to embrace, to love your word. Lord, I, I do pray that the words that follow, uh, words that follow about this difficult passage, would be true and faithful to your intentions to it. And Lord, that through your spirit, you would apply these truths, truths about the gospel, to our heads 
into our hands, into our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power and the efficacy of your loving Spirit. Amen. Well, let's start by, by thinking about where we were last week. And if you remember the sermon from last week, Jesus, just like the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 11, has left the temple, he has left the city, and he's gone out to the mount on the east of the city, and Jesus is cased to the mount of Olivet. And the glory of the Lord in Ezekiel 11 did this to reach the exiles, and here Jesus himself is speaking to exiles. Right here, he's speaking privately to his disciples, and he's speaking to us. Jesus is speaking to his church, an exiled people who will not find their full home in this world. And just like in last week's passage, in today's passage, Jesus tells us words that are both hard and hopeful. He begins today's passage by saying, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So you're probably asking yourself, what does this mean and what exactly is the abomination of desolation? And I believe we can best understand this by understanding the abomination of desolation, both as a specific event and something that happens again and again and again throughout the course of history. But, but bear with me, because I, I want to set this up by way of an analogy. I, I think it'll, it'll help drive this concept home. And I want to use an analogy from the recent and, and otherworldly novel, uh, Piranesi, by the author Susanna Clarke. Um, it's a great novel, and, and the main character, a guy named Piranesi, he lives in a world that's made up of a big house, and statue after statue fills the vast and endless halls of this never-ending mansion. And Piranesi, he, he comes to understand the people that he meets as, as kinds of embodiments of the ideas that are expressed in the statue. For instance, concerning one character, a character who goes to desperate and cruel lengths for the sake of research and discovery, Piranesi understands him and he relates him to a statue of a kneeling man. Of this statue we read, A sword lies at his side, its blade broken in five pieces. Round about lie other broken pieces, the remains of a sphere. The man has used his sword to shatter the sphere because he wanted to understand it. But now he finds that he has destroyed both sphere and sword. This puzzles him. He has picked up some of the fragments and stares at them intently in the hope that they will eventually bring him new knowledge. And there's a universal aspect to this statue, and it, it helps explain certain ways that we as humans approach the world. The statue represents how this character in the novel and all of us are more than willing to destroy things for the sake of knowledge. For instance, we enact this statue every time we ask ourselves only, can we do something? And ignore that larger question of, ought we do something? 
We've enacted this statue, for instance, each time in the long history of medicine. The doctors have intentionally infected patients with horrible diseases in order to better understand the disease and the illness. We enact this statue, for instance, when we bypass difficult ethical questions that science and medicine present, and we only ask ourselves the question, would this be an interesting problem to solve? We enact this statue when we destroy the very things we seek to understand in order to find out about them. And in the process, we damage ourselves. There are a million different ways that we enact the statue. It's both universal and it's specific. And part of life is learning to see universal forms expressed in particular things. For instance, I remember when my kids were young, I got so frustrated because one day they were fighting each other over a piece of cardboard. And I remember thinking, the only reason you want this piece of cardboard is because your sibling wants it. And then I remember thinking, I do the exact same thing. I'm just much more subtle about it. Very often, if I check my own heart, the only reason I want something is because I know someone else wants it. And if Piranesi saw a statue of two toddlers fighting over a piece of cardboard, he would be reminded of me if he looked inside of my own heart. That statue, too, would be both specific and universal. And this, I believe, is how we should understand Jesus' use of the abomination of desolation. It's both specific and it's universal. That is, he's speaking of a specific thing, and yet he's also speaking directly of two specific things. And this twofold reference, it already hints at this dynamic of specificity and universality. And these specifics are like one of Piranesi's statues that play out again and again in history. As the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, there is nothing new under the sun. Jesus is telling us that he is referring specifically to the prophet Daniel. We find the term, the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that makes desolate in Daniel 11. Daniel here is writing about the king of the north who will make war against the people of God. And as Daniel prophesies, the king of the north shall, quote, Set up the abomination that makes desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the word abomination, it's got a very important role that it plays in the Old Testament. Theologian Peter Lightheart, he points out that generally it speaks of the idolatry of Israel, the way the people of God have turned away to false gods. On this score, Lightheart references Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. If you remember, Solomon gave himself to the abominable worship of pagan gods following the religions of his many wives. Isaiah rebukes Judah for the worship by which the people delight in abominations. Jeremiah rebukes the people for the ways that they have defiled the temple with things used to worship other gods. 
Jeremiah speaks of Judah's adultery to the one true God and how the Lord sees their abominations. And Ezekiel, too, speaks of such abominations inside of the temple itself. As Lightheart summarizes, in all these cases, the abominations are connected with idolatry, idolatry that is committed by Israel. Israel commits abominations when they set up idols in God's own house, when they desecrate and defile his temple. And this helps us understand the particular abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel. This, happen, this, this, this event, this happening, is, is generally identified with something that happened in the 2nd century B.C. The northern king here is identified as the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a king who embraced Hellenistic Greek culture and religion. And remember, as Daniel tells us, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. The king of the north seduced with flattery, with privilege and prestige and power, those who were willing to forsake the covenant of their God. Antiochus Epiphanes, he he deposed the faithful Jewish priesthood and he replaced it with those who were willing to break the rules of the temple and to worship in a way that was more fitting, that was more amenable to his own ideals. And these false priests were polluting the temple. They were practicing the very idolatry condemned by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This is how it all began, with the people of God being seduced into breaking their covenant with God. But unrest soon developed because of the troubles that come from buying and selling the priesthood, and things get worse. Antiochus captured Jerusalem, and he went so far as to sacrifice a pig to Zeus on the altar of the Lord inside of the temple itself. This sacrifice is what is most often understood as the abomination of desolation. But here's the thing. It was the culmination of the mounting idolatry of the people of God. Again, it's a people that initially let Antiochus' influence into the temple. They traded the true service of the temple for political privilege and prestige. Yet they got more than they bargained for. The people of God forsook their covenant with God and instead made a covenant with the political powers that be. The abomination of desolation is simply the, simply the culmination of that abomination enacted by the people of God. And this is one instance. But Christ shows us that the words of Daniel also refer to another abomination, another act of idolatry committed by God's people against the purposes of God. Again, the abomination of desolation is like a universal statue with countless instances of specific historical enactments. Christ refers the abomination of desolation to his own contemporary city of Jerusalem. And remember his words about the temple. We we, we saw these last week. See, your house is left to you desolate. The house of God, the temple, is already desolate. It's already experiencing desolation. Christ has left the temple and he will not return. 
The abomination of idolatry has caused Christ to leave, and now that he's gone, the abominations will continue. And again, Peter Lightheart is helpful here. Remember from last week's passage that when Jesus looks upon the city of Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Lightheart explains that we should understand this as the abomination that Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is, sorry, Jerusalem is the city that kills the messengers of God. It is a city that will kill Christ, and not long after that, it will kill the first Jewish Christians. It will begin this as a policy of persecution, beginning with the martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And we can take this connection further. The persecution will be headed up by the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the scribes, the very ones who are in charge of the temple. The rulers of the temple will again give themselves to idolatry. They will set themselves up against the very purposes of God. And they will enact this persecution. They will attempt to retain power with the help of the powers that be, the Roman Empire. In partnership with Rome, they will kill the forthcoming messengers of God. What will be placed in the temple as implements of worship? The Roman shield, the Roman sword, even and especially the cruel Roman execution device of the cross. As with Antiochus, the people of God have been seduced to violate the covenant of God by way of flattery, by way, by way of, of power and prestige and influence. And as with Antiochus, this alliance will end in the subjugation and the humiliation of the people. But Rome will do much worse than did Antiochus. In 70 AD, Rome will lay waste to Jerusalem. Antiochus desecrated the temple. Rome will utterly destroy it. And true, this will come in response to a rebellion against Rome. But here's the thing. As the religious leaders ally themselves with Rome against Christ and his disciples, they find themselves worshiping on Rome's own terms. They engage in the abomination of desolation. They seek the very salvation that Rome seeks. The people of Jerusalem come to worship their own version of the power-hungry, violent, and impetuous god Zeus. Zeus, or more specifically political power, will again be worshipped in the temple of Jerusalem. Salvation then becomes a matter of political and cultural power. Remember, Solomon replaced the God of Israel with the gods of his many political marriage alliances. The people of Judah in Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's times, they courted the gods of Babylon. The people, in, the people of Judah in Antiochus' time, they forsook the covenant of their God for power and prestige and influence offered by the Hellenistic world and its political order. The religious leaders in Jesus' time forsook the worship of their God to maintain the power of their own status quo. Scripture describes all of these acts as abominations. 
And thank goodness that now we are past such abominations, that the church never finds itself seduced away from the covenant with their God by way of the flattery of the powers that be. And please do sense the deep, deep sarcasm there. This is a perennial struggle for the people of God. Remember, Christ is here describing two particular events, but these events are also universal. They will happen again and again in the history of the people of God. The abomination of desolation is a kind of statue that captures the the, the universality of these particular enactments. Each time we forsake the covenant of God for the power and prestige and influence of our culture and society and of the political status quo, we enact the abomination of desolation. As per Piranesi, imagine a statue of a king sacrificing a pig to the god Zeus on the altar of the Lord. This is the statue by which we must understand and interpret many of our own actions. We have to ask ourselves, are we being flattered away from the covenant of our God by way of the prestige and privilege and influence of political and cultural power? Are we imagining salvation in cultural and political terms? Do we think that if we just got this person elected, then everything would be okay? A statistic that I've cited often tells us that 42% of registered voters think that voters of the other party are, quote, downright evil. Do you embrace this? Rather than reckoning with the sin in every human heart, even and especially our own hearts, do you tend to see the world as us versus them carved up in political terms? Do you find yourself breaking the covenant of your God for the sake of the flattery of those who you seek the approval of? Do you find yourself either denying or remaining silent about core Christian convictions for this reason? And hear me. Yes, political involvement is important. Yes, we should perform our civic duties with great care and with great seriousness. But here's the question. Do you expect the legislation of this world to usher in the kingdom of God? If so, we are enacting the logic of the abomination of desolation. We are sacrificing a pig to Zeus on the altar of God. It might not feel like that, just like in my more selfish moments, it doesn't feel like I'm a toddler fighting over a piece of cardboard. And yet, in my heart, that's exactly what's going on. The basic problem is this. Such efforts seek a full and total salvation in this world. They seek a consummation and a fullness of history that comes from within history itself. Toward that end, literature professor Jeffrey Bilbrow, he points out that in America, the political left and the political right essentially tell two different stories about history. For instance, The two previous American presidents presented two contrasting narratives about history. One president told us to make America great again. The other told us to put our hands on the arc of history to bend it toward the hope of a better day. One presents us with a narrative of a glorious past that we must return to. The other presents a glorious future that we must still seek out. 
And please hear me. I'm not telling anyone how to vote. I'm not telling you how to navigate the two-party system. What I am saying is this. We are being indoctrinated every day to think that everything rides on what happens here and now, that your salvation is in the here and now, that we must either reclaim our salvation from our past or realize it as our future. Either way, this is history as we know it, the kind of history that we can force and direct with the help of Caesar. However, this posture changes us. It fills us with the same rage and anxiety and fear that is endemic in our culture at large. The backdrop of our lives is no longer the grand story of God's redemption, but it's the comparatively cramped and small story told by the daily news. And yes, if that small story is our ultimate story, then yes, we should absolutely be hostile and angry and furious and terrified because those downright evil people, whoever they are, they are going to destroy my only chance at salvation. And so ask yourself, do you worry more about inflation than about the sin in your life? Do you worry more about the next election cycle than the collective state of our hearts as the people of God? Do you rejoice or sorrow more in the news headlines than in the joys and afflictions of this church community? Do you see people that support this or that policy as the true enemies of your life rather than the powers and principalities that exalt themselves against the purposes of God? If so, a pig is being sacrificed to Zeus on the altar of your heart. Scripture provides us a helpful image here. When God's people are looking to Egypt for their hope instead of God, Jeremiah tells the people, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. If you lean on the powers in this world to bring about your salvation, that support will become your wounding. It will become your undoing. Again, it will change your heart. Yes, societies can be more or less just, more or less noble, and we should work hard to make our society a just and noble society. And yes, we must love and serve our society and country with a properly ordered love and service. And yes, let the church serve our fellow citizens as the very best of citizens because we don't see the other as an enemy, but as someone we are called to love as our very self. All the same, all the same, to put the full weight of our souls upon the kingdoms of this world is like driving a semi-truck across a bridge made of toothpicks. It's going to collapse. Christ himself warns us not to expect too much. He tells us that Jerusalem will fall and it will be horrible for all, even the elect of Christ himself. And toward that end, the fall of Jerusalem too is a kind of universal form expressed in particular historical events. How do we know this? Well, Christ tells us, 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And take note, it's generally agreed that Matthew wrote his gospel sometime between 80 and 95 AD. And so that's at least 10 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so Matthew lived to witness this destruction, but, but he speaks of this great cosmic event happening immediately after this tribulation. The point is that the tribulation just is the age of the church. The point is that this great tribulation just is the space between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. The point is that the time of the great tribulation is now. And in this time, many great cities and societies will fall, just as did Jerusalem. And we need to come to terms with this truth. For one thing, if Jerusalem fell, the heart of Old Testament Israel, if Rome fell, the supposed eternal city, then anywhere and everywhere can fall. We are living in sandcastles trying to defend against the tsunamis of history. And note, very, very few people in history have lived with the relative safety and comfort which many of us, myself included, inhabit. And here we come to a deep, deep irony. We, the very, very few people who live in these extremely rare, comfortable conditions, we both expect too much and too little from life. I recently listened to a lecture in which someone pointed out that the, the average French peasant in the Middle Ages, he didn't expect as much out of life, out of this life, as we do. Death was always just around the corner, Starvation was always one bad harvest away. A small cut could cause an infection that could lead to death. Suffering and death lurked around every corner, and he knew it. And yet, at the same time, he hoped for much, much more than we do. He really did hope in the new creation, in the resurrection, in the restoration of all things, and for the beatific vision of God himself. He knew that life, even amidst the very good gifts of crops and family, friendship, the beauty of nature, he knew that life was a tribulation. Even more, because of that, he enjoyed and appreciated these good gifts more out of gratitude, not out of entitlement. But what about us? Let's take an example. There's a $400 plan to build a city somewhere in the American Southwest. It's supposed to be a kind of, of blueprint, a new vision for civic life, a kind of beacon to a lost world. The name of the city is Telosa, and this comes from the Greek word telos. And so the idea here is if we can just tweak a few parts of civic life, then finally we will have the conditions just right for humanity to reach its telos, its purpose, its full and complete flourishing. And, and take, for instance, a list of, of some of Telosa's aims. A 15-minute commute for all citizens, shared decision-making concerning budgets and city planning, 
a sustainable use of resources. And all of these things are good things. These are things we should be seeking. But we have to ask, is this the very best that humanity can do? If telosa is our actual telos, then our telos, our ultimate hope, isn't really all that spectacular. Yes, we expect much from this life. We expect the city of Telosa and not the dangerous world of the French peasant. But our hope isn't that much to hope about. If the telos of history comes from within history, then we live in quite a small history and we are quite small creatures. And Christ here warns us against small hopes. He says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Instead, as as Christ goes on to tell us, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So great, so wonderful, so majestic will be Christ's second coming that no one No one will miss it. It's going to fill up the whole sky. In the end, the telos, the culmination of history, if it's telosa, then yes, we could easily, easily miss it. Only a very small ending can be missed. But friends, we are not meant for small endings. We are meant for the glorious return of Christ. Nothing less. And take note, one day Christ will come. And on that day, literally everything will stop as Christ, the true king of the world, comes back to gather his people and to fully establish his perfect kingdom. One day this really, really will happen. And yet even now Christ is reigning. And this fact, I believe, helps us make sense of one of the more difficult statements that we find in the passage. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. And here's what I think is going on here. Remember that the book of Matthew begins with a genealogy. Matthew introduces his gospel by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew stresses that Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised king. And so Matthew goes on to trace Christ's kingly lineage. Matthew tells us who either ruled or should have ruled in each generation from the tribe of Judah. But here's the thing. If Jesus is the promised king, if he's the king who will reign forever, then we have not moved on from that last generation that Matthew cites, that of Jesus who is called the Christ. We have not moved on from this generation because Christ is God's forever king. We are still in this generation, and indeed, it will never pass To say otherwise would be to replace the kingship of Christ. And so, yes, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. But what about this imagery of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, and the stars falling from the sky? 
As commentators point out, the, the Old Testament prophets, they often speak of, of rulers in other nations in precisely these terms. For instance, uh, Isaiah says the following when he's, when he's talking about the fall of Babylon. Isaiah says, For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And this reminds us that on the day of Christ's return, all the rulers of this world, however noble or evil, will give way to the one who sits upon the throne of God. And such imagery also likely points us to the new creation, the making of all things new, even the stars themselves made new. This imagery reminds us that because of the fall, not even the stars shine like they should. And so even the most beautiful sunset in our present life is but a faint and far-off echo of those beautiful sunsets that we will enjoy one day in the new creation. But there's more. This cosmic darkening also points us to something else. It points us to when Christ inaugurated his kingdom. It points us to Christ's enthronement. It points us to Christ seated upon the throne of the cross. What kind of king is this? Christ is the king who takes upon himself the greatest of tribulations. Christ is the king who defeats the true enemies of God's purpose. Christ is the king who by his own death and resurrection overcame the enemy that conquers even the greatest of sinners, the greatest of Caesars the enemy of sin and death. And when Christ does this, it is dark. During Christ's crucifixion, the sun literally ceased to shine down upon the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 27, Matthew tells us that everything was dark between the hours of noon and 3 p.m. This darkness is how Christ inaugurated his kingdom, and this king died, was raised, he ascended and is now reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And a similar darkness, a similar darkening of the stars will also bring his kingdom to fulfillment. And so the question that we are faced with is this. Do we want to join this kingdom? If so, we only need place our faith in him. We need only remove whatever else, pig or otherwise, is being sacrificed upon the altars of our hearts. We need only give ourselves to the fuller hope that Christ promises, rather than the comparatively smaller stories of the daily news, of political platforms, and of the city of Telosa. Christ has taken every penalty of man so that we might enjoy every blessing of God, my friends. You have a king who gave up everything for you because of his deep, deep love. We have to open our eyes to the full scope of history, to its fulfillment that comes from outside of history, to the fulfillment that comes from Christ alone. And here's the thing. Our politically conservative or progressive tendencies to either look forward or backward, they're not wrong. They just don't go far enough. We are historical creatures. However, the past that we must look back to is greater than we can even remember, the Garden of Eden. 
And the completed arc of history is more glorious still. The new creation and the full restoration of all things and the resurrection. And right now, Christ is already reigning. He's already directing all of history to its wonderful fulfillment. But all the same, we feel the pain and we feel the suffering that characterizes this age, the age of the Great Tribulation. We're in much the same position as the carriage driver, the cabbie in the first story in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, the magician's nephew. The cabbie is there. He witnesses the creation of Narnia. Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, he sings the world of Narnia into existence. And we find a scene that's not unlike the way that Christ describes his bringing in of the new creation. We read, One moment there had been nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand thousand points of light leapt out, single stars, constellations, and planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. Glory be, said the cabbie. I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. One day Christ will come. One day we will see Christ in all of his glory and worship him in the deepest joy of our hearts. One day everything will be set right. One day Christ will wipe every tear from every eye and there will be no more sorrow or suffering or pain. The earthly city of Jerusalem, the city of Rome, the city of Telosa, none of these can meet the deepest desires of our soul. But Christ and his kingdom can, and one day they will. As Lewis says elsewhere, if I feel in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so when Christ comes back, let us not be like the cabbie saying, I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. The truth is that our real story, our actual history, is much, much more glorious than this. The truth is that things even more beautiful than this populate our cosmos. The truth is that the great tribulation of our present life will one day give way to a world much, much more wonderful than even the imagination of C.S. Lewis can conceive. And so we, as the people of God, we wait for the lightning of his coming that will one day feel, fill the sky. Indeed, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the promise of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done to bring us to yourself. Lord, and we thank you for the glorious end, the glorious new beginning that you promise us in Christ Jesus. Give us glad, hopeful, confident, assured hearts as we await that day. Christ, come. Amen.